Hi there. Welcome to Journey On. I'm Dave Smelser. So in the last episode, we talked about how growing spiritual people might be able to help lead our very divided world through these divisions into a more hopeful future, that this kind of spirituality might have an important large-scale promise. This week, we'll look at this starting from the inside out, starting from the kind of practice that leads to sustaining wonder and joy, and we'll consider what that might mean. I'll start with a story about what things along these lines look like for me during a recent experience. Many Journey On podcasts focus on the thoughts of a given spiritual master like Brother Lawrence or St. Francis. This week, after my opening story, we'll focus especially on the thoughts and life of one of the most prominent spiritual leaders and most prominent peace activists on earth who's still alive at 93. We'll look at the simple practice this leader encourages us to try as a starting point. We'll talk about things like the power of what we, quote, touch, as it were, in our focused thoughts, and how that touch can offer a quick road to wonder, joy, and even large-scale change in our world. And we'll look at how one Bible writer suggests that the sort of wonder and joy that comes from this was central to Jesus' power and impact. Before we launch in, let me mention that if this stuff grabs you, you might be interested in checking out a delightful weekly online group with people from around the country and a bit beyond. It's Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and if you want to uh, learn how to connect with it or learn more information about it, you can email mail, M-A-I-L, at blueoceanfaith.org. Also, as with all podcasts, if you like Journey On, we'd so appreciate it if you'd take a moment to review it on iTunes and leave comments so more people can hear about it. Okay, kick us off Ryan Hood for Change the World Through Wonder and Joy. back, I went to a conference that triggered me in unexpected ways. The conference itself was great, so it wasn't about that. Instead, I realized driving over to it that I actually hadn't been to a gathering like that in a long time, but I used to go to a lot of them, and they always triggered me. I have a weird phobia of feeling trapped, so historically I would skip out of a bunch of sessions of conferences like this just so I could take a walk or something. And as I anticipated this conference, I realized that was just the tip of the iceberg. So driving over there, I realized I wished it were the day before or the day after the conference because I like the freedom of less structured days. So because I'm a contemplative in the sense we talk about here, I immediately knew how I should think about those thoughts. I should let go the thought that I wanted what was true yesterday because that longing was this thing called clinging, wanting some past, more pleasant experience rather than the present experiences I was being offered. Then, still just in the car driving over, I realized that in these sorts of gatherings in the past, I also felt pressure to get to know people who might be helpful in some way to whatever I'm up to. This time, though, I had a contemplative category for that, too. That would be grasping, reaching for some benefit outside of just being present to what was happening right in the moment of the conference itself. So I let that go, too, and that felt good. At the risk of being overly indulgent, let me give you a few more blow-by-blows of my experience at this, again, quite good conference. So I arrive, a little late, no doubt because of my need not to feel trapped, and after dislodging some unfortunate people who'd actually shown up on time so I could find a seat, I settle in. And I focus on my breath to do my best to center me into what was actually happening and not my historic inner challenges in such settings, and that worked great. And then lunch comes. And one thing I hate in unstructured new environments like that is the pressure at mealtimes to, I don't know, make them count or something. So in this instance, I find someone sitting by themselves, And we introduce ourselves over our food, and I ask after them, and they tell me a bit about themselves. And right about then, on the other side of me, an important person at the conference sits down with his lunch. And the person I'm talking with, 
evidently familiar with all my old internal pressures, immediately, immediately quits talking with me and talking over the top of me, starts ignoring me in an attempt to connect to the important person who just sat down next to me. So after a few moments of this awkwardness, I finish my meal, excuse myself, and clear my plate looking for greener pastures. But by this time, everyone has found a conversation. So I try to figure out which random group of people I don't know to break in upon and decide instead I'd just be happier taking a walk until the lunch session is over. So I do that. And I take a walk on, granted, a lovely day, nonetheless internally berating myself because here it is, my familiar pattern at conferences like this one. And I'm hearing all old voices about how I'm wasting opportunities to meet people who somehow could be important later on to me in ways I can't quite figure out. And I'm judging myself for, again, taking a walk on my own at such a time. But again, I'm a contemplative now. So I focus on my breath as I walk and on the steps I'm taking and on the environment around me. And suddenly it hits me. Well, I'm sure all those judgments are true, but you know, this is a pretty great walk. And I'd actually been hoping for a pretty walk for several days before, but hadn't managed to get out and take one. And in my, my sense in that contemplative space, perhaps from God was, well, another way to understand what's going on here is that I'm getting an awesome gift of a lovely walk. And perhaps I can receive that walk and just notice my self-judgments and then let them go. Things continue in this vein. I'm sure I've persuaded you that I could go on all day with these internal observations. But in the spirit, back at the sessions, which now involve some sharing from the crowd, as I follow my breath, I'm aware, this will sound bad, of all the ways I judge people and then judge myself. Probably because my historic problems with settings like this, I'm very guarded in my sharing at kind of open settings with people I don't know. But some others are not. They share really freely. Some go beyond just sharing freely to looking to take the floor whenever they can get the floor. And I notice I judge those people. So what's that about, I ask? Well, with a moment's further stillness, I realize it at the very least ties into an old wound from my childhood that made me think that other people's thoughts were important and mine weren't welcome unless I was explicitly given the floor. And then, of course, I noticed that I quit judging the free sharers in the group and I started judging myself. Why was I the way I was? Why was I so guarded in these settings? But in my contemplative self, again, following my breath, I moved into a different mode of just noticing all this internal turmoil happening within me. I just observed that welter of judgment. And suddenly, some good things started happening. I realized I was no longer ill at ease there. If it was right for me to share, I realized I could pull that off. Though, relatively speaking, I was still one of the more silent participants. Someone actually grabbed me on the way out to tell me that one thing I'd shared was one of the most valuable things I'd gotten out of the whole time. I realized I didn't actually really judge even the most aggressive sharers. They were free to be who they were. I found myself on breaks just initiating with whoever was in front of me, and I found myself having warm conversations. Suddenly, a number of interesting connections came up with people suddenly taking an interest in me. And once we were introduced, even with some people saying they knew who I was by reputation, that always feels so good, and being eager to connect. I left that time realizing I'd gained so much from the sorts of spiritual practice we talk about on Journey On. It's not that in my earlier self, I wouldn't have realized many of the times, for instance, that I was judging others. I would have realized it. And I would have done my best not to judge them because I was aware that Jesus said judging is bad. But then assuredly, I would have judged myself because someone has to get judged, right? And in the end, in my heart, I probably would have judged the others anyway because they would have continued to annoy me with the things they did. Even if I quit judging them, they would do it again and I would judge them again. So it would have been a lose-lose and the whole time would have been mostly stressful and I would have been relieved when it was over. Whereas in this case, just getting still and observing all the maelstrom happening for me beat by beat left me in a very different space, left me cheerful, grateful for the experience, 
connected to what was going on and to the people in the room, trusting that whatever good things needed to come from it would come from it, immersed in what was going on moment to moment rather than wishing I was somewhere else doing something else. Okay, on our last Journey On podcast, we talked about some ways that people looking to grow with God in their spiritual lives might help heal the major divisions in our world, and so might help us all move forward into a better world. But some great spiritual teachers offer another perspective on this that starts much smaller. They suggest that as we find the kind of joy and peace and equanimity that a growing spiritual practice is intended to bring about in us, perhaps in the spirit of what I experienced at the conference, we find that we are, in fact, changing the world, for real, not just as a pleasant thought. Sometime back, I went with some friends to a famous sort of church in my area, and the speaker talked about exactly this point in ways I wasn't sure I believed, but which might be an interesting starting point for considering some of the historic wisdom on the subject. So this sort of church taught that whatever our current spiritual and emotional state was would put out what they called vibrations, actually, not metaphorically, that would change actual things throughout the world. And they had a detailed map about what emotions emitted what vibrations and about how to, how to move to higher vibrations and how accomplishing that would change the world in far-flung ways we could never know because of these powerful vibrations we sent out into the world. So shortly afterwards, another friend was asking me what I thought about my experience with these folks at this sort of church. And I mentioned their vibrations idea in a charmed, but I mean dismissive way. And my friend, a committed churchgoer whom I'd expected to dismiss these thoughts right along with me, said, well, I don't know. They pointed out that there's evidence that plants respond to our moods by thriving or wilting. Might that be because of vibrations? They asked me what I thought of expressions like, that place has a good vibe. I said, I thought that expression was great as a metaphor, but they kept pushing. How did I know it was a metaphor and not something actual? So I'll just say, I submit the vibrations perspective, whatever my doubts, for your consideration about ways that our internal state can impact the wider world. But let's look at a related but different contemplative perspective, and let's start with the Bible. So Psalm 45 is an ode to this great and noble king. And what makes this king so powerful and effective? Verse 7 in Psalm 45 says, You, this king, love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So this great king is so righteous, not wicked, and gets as a gift, as a result from God, some sort of profound joy. Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament quotes the same verse, saying that the so-called oil of joy is in fact a central part of Jesus's power and impact. So that seems interesting along these lines, even in the vibration sense. Here are some quotes from a monk, I'll tell you more about him in a minute, whom the great Catholic contemplative Thomas Merton called his brother above all others, who, I'm quoting Merton here, sees things in the world exactly the same way as Merton, and who Martin Luther King nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in the 60s. This guy is an especially interesting intersection of contemplative spiritual stuff that has real-world impact. I'm being coy about naming him. I'll do it in just a minute. But here's this guy talking about this stuff. He says, If we change our daily lives, the way we think, speak, and act, we change the world. The best way to take care of the environment is to take care of the environmentalist. Okay, so if we change our inner life, we're going to change the world, and environmentalists will have more impact if they are changed on the inside, and that will change the world. That's his starting point. Or he says this, when we walk mindfully and touch the earth with our feet, when we drink tea with friends and touch the tea and our friendship, we get healed and we can bring this healing to the world. 
So kind of a pretty picture. And this image of touch, we're going to talk about quite a bit more. It's a big theme with this person. The speaker is a man named Thich Nhat Hanh. I've talked before on Journey On about likely the most famous and beloved Buddhist monk in the world, the Dalai Lama. But Thich Nhat Hanh is probably the second most famous and beloved Buddhist monk in the world. He's a biggie. As I post this, the NBC series, The Good Place, have you seen The Good Place? Pretty fun. About a version of heaven and hell. It had its final episode a couple of weeks back. And it included an extended analogy from Thich Nhat Hanh. He's, as I post this, still alive at 93 years old. So hoping he's still alive as you listen to this. He's in exile from Vietnam because before the war, he refused to take political sides in the theory that the spiritual leaders there would be the ones to pick up the pieces after the war. So he was attacked by both sides and has ever since lived as a Vietnamese exile in France. He's regarded as one of the leading peace activists of the last half century or more. Again, Martin Luther King nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. And he's written extensively and thoughtfully about Jesus, several books. And for our purposes here, he aligns strongly, again, with the biggie Christian contemplatives, right? Merton said he and I see things exactly the same way. So let me throw a few of Thich Nhat Hanh's perspective your way and see if you find them as encouraging as I do. First, he's regarded as the happiest person on earth by people who know him. It was written repeatedly in things I was reading. That's a nice and unexpected quality for a peace activist to have. You'd think they'd be kind of miserable because they're always in situations where people aren't getting along. A nun I've read on him says that he enjoys each moment more than anyone else he's run across, and that has remained true as he's aged. I'll give you a few more quotes from him and about him, including from this nun, in a moment. And then I'll finish by offering some concrete suggestions from him and a few others about how to get the win-win of finding more and more joy and wonder in each moment, and also then impacting the world as a result. And just to preview, the perspective of all the great spiritual teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh included, is that what gets this good stuff is what they call practice which is actually faithfully and diligently pursuing these spiritual choices regularly. Maybe you can see at least a hint of that in my opening stories about what practice looked like for me at this conference. So these quotes are all, in their own way, windows into the practice he's suggesting, and they're pretty encouraging. So this is this nun again talking about Thich Nhat Hanh. She says, Once we had organizational problems, which seemed to me of paramount importance, I saw Thay, she calls him Thay, it's her name for him, I saw Thay in the garden. And I related the problem to him. Rather than tell me directly what I should do, he led me to a small magnolia tree and asked whether I had enjoyed the fragrance of this flower yet. There are so many wonderful things in our world to enjoy, and yet we concentrate on what is not going well. It's sort of a a charming picture. He doesn't address her anxiety, her problems. He takes her to a magnolia tree to smell it and ask her if she's noticed it. And then this last comment, there are so many wonderful things in our world to enjoy, and yet we concentrate on what is not going well. We're going to get to that. That's kind of a biggie in Thich Nhat Hanh's worldview. Then, then uh, here are a few quotes from Mr. Thich Nhat Hanh. On suffering, he says, You have every right to suffer. He talks about suffering a lot. He's gone through suffering. He went through the war. He's a peace activist. He's seen people in horrible situations. So he says, You have every right to suffer, but you do not have the right not to practice when you suffer. Kind of an interesting point. We'll come back to more there. He has a suggestion. Here's a suggestion. Every time we hear a bell like a telephone, we should go back to ourselves and enjoy our breathing as this wonderful sound brings us back to our true home, the miracle of living in the present moment, a big theme for him. The miracle, he says, and this might uh, irk uh, Bible readers, but run with it for a second. He says, the miracle is not to walk on water. The miracle is to walk on the green earth in the present moment, to appreciate the beauty that are, the peace and beauty that are available now. 
Kind of a beautiful thought, right? The miracles to walk on the green earth in the present moment, to appreciate the peace and beauty that are available now. You might hear echoes of that in my story of taking the walk at lunchtime when I felt so mad at myself for being such, everybody else seemed to be able to find a way to network at this conference and I didn't, and I was out walking. And then suddenly I realized I am walking on the green earth. Let's just feel this for a moment. And that was a transformative moment for me, in, at least in a small way. All right, we'll come back to that theme too. Here's another quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, our body is here, wherever we are, but our mind is elsewhere. It's in the past or the future, and we are not really alive. We are like ghosts. If our beautiful child were to come up to us and offer us a smile, we would miss him completely, and he would miss us. Kind of a touching image that if we're not anchored, centered in the present moment, we're like ghosts. We miss even moments like such a charming one as he suggested. He says, let us really enjoy touching our breathing and being alive, touch again, a big theme for him. We'll come back to that. As you wash your face in mindfulness, aware that you have eyes that can see, that the water comes from distant sources to make your washing possible, your washing will be much deeper, as if we need a deeper washing of our face, but it's fun. It's charming. He says, here's a practice for you while you're washing your face. Breathing in, I'm aware of my eyes. Breathing out, I smile to my eyes. We'll look at his use of smile there, but it's like we, we just take delight in our eyes. We pay so much attention, he says, to what is wrong. Why not notice what is wonderful? We really take time to appreciate our eyes. Seeing is a miracle, a condition for our happiness. We don't act as if we are in paradise. And he goes on in this little moment to talk about we want to travel to far-flung places to see the world. But if we didn't have sight, we probably wouldn't care, and far better to suddenly have sight and just be where we are and see the miracle, the kind of riot of colors and textures and light around us. That'd be far bigger than any trip to the most exotic place we could imagine. Then he says, or our heart, which pumps thousands of gallons of blood every day without stopping, even while we sleep, as it brings us peace and well-being. We only touch things that make us suffer. Again, this touch idea. And because of that, we give our heart a hard time by our worries and what we eat and drink. Doing so, we undermine our own peace and joy. So take a moment to notice that your heart is pumping even when you're not aware of it, which, of course, you're never aware of it, and all the good things it brings you and the miracle that is. He says, with this sort of practice, everything becomes real. We become ourselves, fully alive in the present moment, and the tree, our child, and everything else reveal themselves to us in their full splendor. And again, he quotes, the miracle is to walk on earth. Okay, let me interject with a couple of observations from these quotes and see what you think about them. So first, a central pathway, says Thich Nhat Hanh, to our own joy and to healing the world comes from sustaining being astonished. A central pathway to our own joy and to healing the world comes from sustaining being astonished. Now, being astonished at life turns out to be a big deal, which makes sense, of course. That's got to make us feel better. But as a favorite Catholic writer of mine from about a century ago, G.K. Chesterton majored on, the whole ballgame boils down to being astonished and then sustaining that astonishment, which is a lot of what Thich Nhat Hanh is dealing with here. Here's a quote from a Jewish contemplative, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, that I ran across recently along these lines. He says, I would push back on the notion that your life has to amount to something. It's just amazing, an amazing thing that you exist at all. Isn't that a great quote? I would push back on the notion that your life has to amount to something. It's just an amazing thing that you exist at all. That's about astonishment and wonder. That's the spirit of the enterprise. Faithful practice along these lines is, we're told, a central do-not-pass-go pathway to being able to pull off that sustained astonishment. Secondly, 
in your faithful prayer and meditation, notice and wonder at your physical surroundings. That's this walking on this green earth idea, the scent of the magnolia tree, washing your face, hearing a bell, feeling a teacup and tasting the tea. Uh, I'm sure you notice how sensory Thich Nhat Hanh's spiritual practices. And that's present, again, in my opening story, too, right, on this walk. As I focus on my breath, I notice the sun on my lovely surroundings. I notice what it feels like to take the steps I'm taking. And suddenly, my world, with God jumping in to interpret it, is much brighter and more joyful. It's as if I were touching the beauty of the walk in my heart, rather than just touching the cycle of negative thoughts I started out with. And what do you know? Things concretely change as a result of this touch. So as you pray and meditate, and then in your mindful life as you go about your day, see what happens when you notice your physical surroundings repeatedly in wonder and gratitude, as if that's a trigger for you. Oh, I need to notice that. Look, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm smelling, I'm noticing. Some great spiritual teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh included, notice how we experience being what the Bible calls born again and even resurrected in small ways along these lines. Again, he's written a lot in the Bible. So back to Thich Nhat Hanh and what this means about the idea of being born again and resurrected. When you hear the bell calling you to your breath, he says, you stop your thinking and the bell rescues you and brings you back to your true home where the Holy Spirit and mindfulness are alive. There you are born again. You are born again several times a day. This is the practice of resurrection, at least daily. We die so many times every day. We lose ourselves so many times a day. We also come back to life several times a day. If you don't practice in the way he's describing, then when you lose your life every day, you have no chance to be reborn again. Jesus is born every moment of our daily life. Every day is Christmas Day. Every minute is Christmas Minute. What a, what a thought, kind of a deep thought. There's a, a born again and a resurrection experience repeatedly through our day if we do this sort of stuff, which he's going to say leads to change in the world. And again, he's one of the world's leading peace activists, so he should know. In this spirit, here's a third encouragement from these thoughts along these lines. Use common daily triggers to reconnect yourself to joy. We've been talking about that. Use common daily triggers to reconnect yourself to joy. Uh, the bells thing. I've tried to do it with emails. Before I send an email, just take a moment to notice my breath, to be centered in myself, then to go and send the email. Uh, here's another trigger he mentions daily that he likes. At the beginning of each meal, I recommend that you look at your plate and silently recite, my plate is empty now, but I know that it is going to be filled with delicious food in just a moment. So we notice the ritual of sitting down for food we savor it. We delight in it. We're astonished at the meal that's about to come our way. Perhaps that could be a silent lead into saying grace, if you're a saying grace sort of person. Fourthly, recognize our human bias towards noticing problems. Recognize our human bias towards noticing problems. That's a biggie for many of these folks, that practicing noticing blessings and wonder can change us, and that if we don't, joy becomes far harder because, again, we have this uh, focus on problems. We will throughout our day mindlessly touch problems, so bring them into our heart. I found, after thinking about this, that when I pray for loved ones, rather than starting in on how I want God to fix the problems in their lives, which has been a common practice of mine, I now begin with this formula of prayer to start me. Thank you, God, for delightful X person. I've named them. Thank you, God, for delightful so-and-so. I celebrate how God has promised to answer my prayers for them as the next thing I do, and then I pray whatever I pray. I discovered a real difference immediately upon doing that. The next time I greeted any of these folks, I, without trying, did not at all take them for granted, 
but found myself brightly saying sentimental things that are not my nature. I'm not a particularly sentimental person. I would say things like, how's my favorite person doing? And I would think, that's not like me at all, but I meant it. I said it straight-faced, and it seemed to have sustained sense. Fifthly, practice delight in the present moment as having all the answers and joy you're looking for. Practice delight in the present moment as having all the answers and joy that you're looking for, whatever challenges you might face. Tegnot Han says this is a biggie. The present moment has what you need. But we always think, oh, no, i got to solve this problem because i got this problem coming down the pike. So we use the present moment to ruminate about how we're possibly going to not face this bad thing or how we're going to get out of this fix we've got ourselves in. His whole premise and the premise of all contemplatives is that we're wrong, that actually just being still and present to what's happening around us right now, being in this moment, actually has the answers to all those things we're tempted to ruminate over so much that we have to solve or our life's going to be bad. Thich Nhat Hanh says this is the only important thing for the monks he trains who come to him to be trained. And he's come up with a simple meditation and prayer device along these lines that he starts them off with that I actually use quite a bit. I found it to be a total winner. It, it's a cycle of two breaths, so you can do this for as long as you want. I've done 45-minute sessions only on this at times. It's a charmer. And he says, on the in-breath, your first in-breath, internally you say to yourself, calm. Because the breaths are that way, right? You take a breath, and it's calming, famously so. Then on our first out-breath, you say the word internally, smile, because an out-breath sort of like a smile. You're pushing air through your lips, which sort of has a smiling quality. So you're smiling into the world that you're expelling your air into, into that moment, right? Because it's the present moment. Calm is your in-breath. Smile is your out-breath. Then it's a two-breath cycle. So your second in-breath, you say present moment, meaning on the in-breath, which is calming again. You center yourself in being present to this moment, present moment. And then on your second out-breath, you internally say wonderful moment which has power. I found as I've just done that for a bit, it's both calming, but it also is centering in that moment because what I'm always tempted to think is the present moment is this real problem. I'm always trying to solve some problem about whatever's going on in my life that's a stressor that I wish were different or whatever I'm concerned about for somebody else. The present moment's an opportunity for me to be angsting or trying to figure out how to solve something. It's not a wonderful moment in itself. And so he says, yes, that's why he's used that little mnemonic for beginning monks for uh, decades now. Because he says, if they can master that, they're on their way. So anyway, I submit that to you if that would be a fun practice to try for however long you'd want, two breaths or, you know, however many minutes you want to try it. Calm, smile, present moment, wonderful moment. Say it again until you get that rhythm. Calm is your in-breath. Smile on the out-breath. Present moment, wonderful moment. I've liked it. It's been a, it's been a fun one. Here are some closing thoughts from this man who, again, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King and who's regarded as one of the great peace workers on earth in the last 60 years. He says this, if in our daily life we can smile, if we can be peaceful and happy, not only we, but everyone will benefit from it. This is the most basic kind of peace work, which from a person who's really known for peace work is noteworthy. And he says, there is no way to liberation, peace, and joy. Peace and joy are themselves the way. My delightful contemplative insights at the conference I went to turned out not only to have real benefits to me, opportunities for growth and joy that I've been wanting for most of my adult life, but also had at least some spillover to others there and in the rest of my life. So let's start in on changing the world around us through our wonder and our joy, and I suppose our sustained astonishment. That's it for this week's Journey on Podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you with me. Delightful. What a delightful person you are. <laughs>
Thanks so much for being here. I'll see you next time. And maybe I'll see you online on a Wednesday night.